Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about Music Masters Collective, a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. These events give you the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, North Mississippi All-Stars, Brother and Sister, Trouble No More, and many more. This July, O'Teal Burbridge will host the 11th annual Roots Rock Revival alongside an incredible group of musicians for a five-day all-inclusive event unlike any other. This once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, masterclasses, song circles, collaborative jams, and so much more. Roots Rock Revival blends the experience of a festival with behind-the-scenes performances and invaluable education from music legends. You won't want to miss it. Packages range from tent camping to luxury cottages to everything in between, and scholarships are also available. Spots are extremely limited, so visit rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault to learn more. That's rootsrockrevival.com slash the vault. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Osiris. So our season premiere episode, as we probably over-explained in our previous episode, we recorded that before we did our live episodes. Our supposed rehearsal episodes came after our actual performance. So we didn't really get, we didn't really know how the live episodes were going to go when we recorded that. So here we are in our second episode of our fourth and possibly final season. So we can comment now on our live episodes. One thing that came up, I don't know if you noticed this, but there were people that were kind of disturbed to see what we looked like as we talked. Right. They were a little thrown off. Did you notice that? Yeah, it's a pretty common podcast phenomenon, right? Like, I have the same experience whenever I see the people I've listened to a lot. Uh, you've heard their voices for so long, you imagine what they look like, and then when the reality doesn't match your mental image, it's very disorienting. Though I, I should say, you know, it's it, it's not particularly shocking that we are two 40-something guys, you know, with beards, graying beards, talking about the Grateful Dead. I feel exactly. like we, we pretty much look like uh, if you drew a music writer <laughs> in his right. 40s, uh, you'd probably come up with us pretty quickly uh, in a police well, sketch. I feel like there's people that don't really they can't discern the differences in our speaking voices and when you look at us you probably feel like i can't really tell the difference between these two (laughs) white guys who are from the midwest with you know salt and pepper beards right they kind of they kind of look alike they kind of sound alike you know my main concern is that people saw those live episodes and now they feel like these guys are too handsome to be talking about the Grateful Dead. Oh, I see. We we don't want to hear about the Grateful Dead from 
these two corn-fed hunks from the middle of the country. We want uglier guys to be talking about ah, this because this I is see. the Grateful Dead. Do you think that's a concern? Do you think that people feel like we're too handsome? Yeah. To uh, to talk about the Grateful Dead is that going to be a problem for us in our final season? Yeah, I don't know. That, that I hadn't considered that. I mean, you know, all the TV deals have been rolling in since those live episodes <laughs> to, to get the, us on. All the modeling contracts, all the calendars, <laughs> right? Like the the, beef, the beefcake calendars, the influencer uh, contracts, people looking for our, our like wardrobe tips. I, th- I had yeah. a WFMU sweatshirt on, you know. Yeah, yeah. You, you have your Elvis in the background. I had my. I actually yeah. did get somebody asking me about my fish prints uh, in the background, so I did maybe sell one item. I don't know if I get a cut, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like people they're going to get distracted now, <laughs> thinking about how handsome we are when they listen to these episodes. Right. So I hope that's not a problem. I hope you can, you know, focus on the content right. of what we're saying and not. You know, our smoldering, saggy faces, <laughs> our, our saggy, wrinkly, yet chiseled, well-chiseled faces. As well as um, our, like, pale, early spring uh, <laughs> Midwesterner uh, no. palette. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that really was, like, the worst time of the year, maybe. <laughs> I guess it would have been worse in January or February. Right. Uh, because I'm even a little more tan now than I was when we did those episodes because I've been yeah. outside more. Yeah. But yeah, that, that that's just like we're two corpses mm. talking, yeah. you know, pale, you know, got rigor mortis setting in. Yeah. They thought that we were the Grateful Dead in a sense, <laughs> you yeah, know, exactly. literally. Yeah. Watching yeah, I, that. I went on vacation to Florida right after that, so I got a little color now, but uh, that's true. It was not looking my best uh, on the live broadcast, uh, despite using the uh, borrowing my wife's, you know, ring light thing for looking, uh, you know, more flattering lighting online. But you know, yeah, you were at Disney World. Yeah, I was at Disney World. Uh, yeah, as, as the as you know, the miss her dead lyric goes, I was cold sober on a wild Disney ride. <laughs> I mean, Disney World. Kind of a unexpected hotspot of controversy in 2022. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I know. I know. There's there is that contingent of the dead community that are uh, conservative. You know, you got Tucker Carlson and uh, the blonde uh, Coulter uh, and Coulter. Yeah. So maybe some of those people now are listening and they are upset that you went to Disney World, <laughs> right? The, the, with all the groomers <laughs> at Disney World. They're going to be upset. They're going to be boycotting our show now. Now we're, now we're going to be roped in. We'll be part of the Disney boycott, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> you know, I had heard rumors that people were canceling their Disney trips in protest and was like, yeah. shorter lines for me. Uh, but I, I will I will give you a field report that not that many people canceled, or if they did, they were immediately replaced by other people who don't care about whatever Fox News controversy there is around Disney. There were a lot of people at Disney World. Uh, while we were there but you know good time not a very grateful dead place i gotta say disney world not a psychedelic experience uh particularly if you're there with your young children <laughs> um well but you know the dead they played orlando i actually to reference 1991 a show i've been listening to lately just on my like non 36 from the vault dead listening it's 4791 from orlando okay it's a good 91 show yeah i just wonder maybe if uh the boys stopped by Disney World, like before playing that show, like they, you know, Jer, 
Went on Space Mountain. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I think maybe it was like Hornsby. Space Mountain. Yeah. Could be good. Who knows? Just stopped over at Epcot, right around on Spaceship yeah. Earth. Maybe like Trixie was with him on the road. You know, she. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't hold how old she was in '91. Maybe she would have been too old for yeah. Disney World. By Take now, her to but... meet Minnie Mouse. Yeah. yeah, Jerry pull some strings. Do a character breakfast. <laughs> he could have done that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's appropriate that we're talking about Disney World because one of our shows is in Florida. Central Florida, one even. Of... Yeah, I looked it up while yeah. I was there. It's only uh, Lakeland, Florida is an hour away from Orlando. So I was uh, almost on the scene of our of this week's Dick's Picks uh, as, Doing I was, some research. as I was researching it. Yeah. I don't know. Central Florida, it's not what I think of when I think of a uh, hot rock and roll town. But uh, no. the dead seem to go to Florida a lot. You, you know, we were going to actually, you know... Uh, we were supposed to have a special guest on this show from Florida to give us the Florida yeah. Dead scene report. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little melancholy yeah. recording this episode. I have to say because these are great shows. That, you know, look, spoiler alert. Got a couple more heaters to go <laughs> in this. Yeah, you know, we had some heaters last week. Got some real heaters this week, but uh, we are going to have our good pal thoughts on the dead. He was supposed to be a guest on this show. We had talked to him and said, you know, any show you want to come on. Yeah, you know, just name the Dick's Picks and and we'll have you on. And he said he wanted to do Dick's Picks twenty nine. I'm not sure if he said this or if I just ascertained it, but I think it was because of the Florida show because he he was he was from Florida or he lived in Florida. I don't know if he's from Florida, but I know he lived there and he was a big proponent of uh, Florida Grateful Dead shows. Yeah, Florida Dead history. He would have been great, uh, but you know, sadly, uh, thoughts on the dead, also known as Rick, he passed away. In 2021, on April 6th, 2021, the one-year anniversary of his passing was recent to when we're, we're recording this episode. So we're, I think we could dedicate this to Thoughts on the Dead. You know, the, the Grateful Dead didn't dedicate songs to people when they passed away. We've talked about this on the show. Right. But we're going to break from their tradition. We're going to give a dedication to our friend Thoughts on the Dead. Uh, right. For Dick's Picks 29 this episode. Yeah. And to bring it full circle, if uh, Rick had still been alive when we did a live broadcast, I'm sure there would have been a long post of the most savage insults to our appearance and basement decor <laughs> shortly thereafter. So, uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sad that I didn't get, you know, put through the ringer by by Rick again. Uh, yes. So. Well, if there's an afterlife, hopefully he's making fun of us with Jerry at his side. Exactly. Rick. Yeah. Rick. This one's for you. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show.
right, this is 36 from The Vault, presented by Osiris. My name is Steve. My name is Rob. We got the longest Dick's Picks of all this week. Yes, a six-banger. Look at that chungus. Yeah, Steve's I'm holding, holding it up. His, you can see the strain of his bicep as he holds this one up. <laughs> that's right. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing arm curls with Dick's Picks 29. As I mentioned, that's the topic of today's episode. Two complete shows, or, or basically complete, right? Is uh, They're complete, yeah. Wasn't the encore cut from... No. We'll get into One of it. The shows? Yeah, no, they're it's uh it's complete shows. I thought I thought for five twenty one seventy seven they cut U.S. Blues from the end. Yeah, Can we I'm Google wrong. that quick? Okay. Why don't you Google that quick? I want to make sure. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But anyway, we have two advertised shows on here. We have the Fox Theater Atlanta five nineteen seventy seven, and then we have Lakeland Civic Center Arena, Lakeland Florida five twenty one seventy seven. There's also bonus material from 10 11 77 that's at the university of oklahoma norman oklahoma so we got actually three shows here yeah basically because it's almost like a quarter of that oklahoma show uh, and by the way you are right they did cut u.s blues you, ah! you, got, you got me right off the top with the correction there we go so uh almost 98 percent two complete shows and then you know a quarter of another show mixed in but we should mention only uh, if you have the CDs. The That's bonus true. tracks did not make it to the streaming services. So if How you did your that? homework on Spotify, six hours wasn't enough. You missed an extra hour of uh, bonus material from this set, only on physical media. And on, and on the CDs, the, the bonus tracks are not listed. They're, they're, they're hidden tracks on the CDs, which is another glorious aspect of the cd experience you get the you get the hidden tracks at the end of of the cds like where the bonus tracks are they have like the negative track yeah so there's like seven eight minutes of silence tricking you but if you like passed out while listening to it then you would mistakenly stumble on the 10 11 77 tracks yeah so pretty glorious i'm not going to be too smug about getting the u.s blues thing right because i feel like i'm going to be eating some crow in this episode, I've got a big plate of crow sitting next to me right now. It's steaming <laughs> hot. Yeah. The aroma is stinging my nostrils. Because speaking of our live episodes, you know, you were talking about Dick's Picks 3 in our episode where we picked our favorite Dick's Picks. We did our Dick's Picks draft. That's right. And you talked about Dick's Picks 3. I feel like that's one of our most controversial episodes because I think a lot of people feel like we were not effusive enough. Mm-hmm. And I feel like you've come around to that. Yeah, I think we were effusive. I think we were also effusive in the wrong places for some deadheads. We talked a lot about the disco dead aspects of that show, and we're really excited about the first disc, and then maybe kind of glossed over the second disc just a little bit, which has that nice sort of four-song suite with the really unusual terrapin that kind of jumps into the middle. Yeah, when I was uh, you know, doing my very serious research for our Desert Island Dicks Picks draft, I scanned through the all the Dick's Picks we've covered so far and found myself really enjoying Dick's Picks 3 again, which I talked about on that episode was one of the first ones I ever bought, so it has a special place for me. But yeah, I really liked it, and I really enjoyed how sleazy it was. <laughs> that was what popped out to me. I, I was into the sleaziness of this 77 Dead show, and so got real excited about this set. Hoping for more of that sleaze, that 70s, late 70s dead sleaze. But yeah, that's, that's where the crow eating comes from me, because that's not really what I got out of this set, uh, even though I enjoyed it very much, of course. Yeah, I mean, the crow eating for me is that I've been um, shooting my mouth off a little bit about 1977. Obviously, you know, I've never disparaged it 
musically, I have always, I mean, how can you not like 1977 Dead? I, my complaints in the past have been about feeling like a little sick of 77. I feel like we hear so much 1977. And of mm-hmm. course, on this set, Dick's Picks 29, we're going to be revisiting May of 77, which is the single most exposed month in Grateful Dead history in terms of releases. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll run down all the live albums that have been released from that time. And we talked about that in our Dick's Picks 3 episode. But I think I was just feeling like, you know, yeah, it's great. But, you know, I want to explore other years. I'm a little sick of hearing about 77. But then, you know, you hear something like Dick's Picks 29 and you're like, Oh yeah, there's a reason why it's maybe overexposed. It's <laughs> right. actually like pretty damn great. Yeah, like it's really great. Uh, and again, like I said, these are two heaters. I have a preference of which of these shows I like the most. We may have a disagreement on that, but yeah, I mean, this is a really, 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 really good dicks picks, and uh, I think I may also have to maybe amend my dicks picks three take a little bit okay add yeah. another add another half star to my <laughs> assessment or okay. maybe a, a full star right to it so that'll be fun to get into but before we get to that we have to do our mailbag segment all right thank you all for writing in uh we we love to hear from our listeners if you want to hit us up we're at 36 ftv mailbag at gmail.com we have we have two letters to read Yeah, maybe I'll take the first one because this is addressing my pet theory. So this comes from Dave in San Diego, who says, I'm not sure what color the sky is in your world, but out here in California, the birthplace and home of the Grateful Dead, 54 degrees is near ungodly cold. So cold rain and snow theory remains effective. So he's referring to, I I believe, our uh, talking about the Salt Lake City show. Yeah, Dick's Picks 28. Yeah, and uh, I was like, uh, you know, a February show in Salt Lake City. Certainly, this is the one that proves my cold rain and snow theory right, which, uh, if you haven't heard me talk about it 20 other times, is that when they open a show with cold rain and snow, it means that it was either cold, rainy, and or snowy outside the venue. But if you've been keeping stats... That has proved wrong more often than right. Far more often wrong than right. But uh, yeah, Dave, thank you for chiming in on this. That he says the Grateful Dead are from California, where 54 degrees is cold. But they're, you know, they're from San Francisco, where 54 degrees I feel like is kind of the like standard, right? <laughs> I mean, it's always yeah. Kinda, it's never that hot. It's never that cold in San Francisco. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we talked about this in our previous episode, Dick's Picks 28, and we we looked up what was the temperature. In Salt Lake City, when they played this show, it was 54 degrees in February. And Rob and I, you know, we're both from the Midwest. We're like 54 degrees in February. Yeah. It's pretty warm. <laughs> and Mr. San Diego here, he's chiming in. He's like, no, that, that's ungodly cold. Look, all due respect to you, sir, Dave from San Diego. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you writing in. But you are soft, sir. <laughs> you are very, very soft. 54 degrees. In February is Bermuda shorts, short sleeve shirt right. kind of weather. Grilling. B- b- bust off on the, the flip-flops. Yeah. I'm sorry, but like <laughs> I, I know that, you know, in San Diego, it's like 80 degrees every single day. Yeah. Uh, but you are soft, sir. And this is, and I, and I say this with love, but like, but you people on the coast, if you live in California or you live in the Upper East Coast... If you live on the West Coast, you're soft because of the weather, but you're also soft because jam bands play there all the time. Grateful Dead playing tons of shows, just like Upper East Coast. You guys are soft because you get tons of opportunities to see these bands. You get to see Grateful Dead all the time. Yeah. We're in the middle of the country. We're freezing our asses off. <laughs> Still. 
the dead, they don't come here as much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, just appreciate what you have, but just know, yeah, I'm soft. I'm pampered. <laughs> I'm lucky, but, you know, if you think 54 degrees is ungodly cold, though, I'm, I'm sorry, but it, you just live a very pampered life. <laughs> so I don't think it applies here. I think we have, I, I think we need to, again, reiterate the idea that it wasn't that cold. It, it also factor in that the dead... They were in Madison, Wisconsin, right? Like two weeks before that show. Yeah, that's and I right. guarantee I don't. I didn't, we didn't look up the temperature in Madison, but it was probably like two degrees <laughs> at, at showtime. Yeah. So even so, even the dead, the California boys, they had already weathered terrible weather, mm-hmm. and from being on the road, fifty-four degrees would have felt balmy, right, to them. I guess maybe it's it could be a metaphorical cold rain and snow. I haven't considered that part of the theory. Sometimes you're just feeling like it's cold and rainy and snowy, even if it's not actually precipitating outside. So I want to look up what they opened with in Madison. <laughs> if they open up the cold rain and snow, because that I would buy. Yeah. I mean, not the rain. It would have been snow and cold. Uh, I punched in the wrong day. No, wait, no. Uh, whatever. Let's move on from that question. We have a longer question here. We could just talk about the weather in 1973 for a long time. Uh, this one comes from our friend Matt in Syracuse. I'm just, we're going to call you our friend, Matt. Uh, thank you for writing in. He writes, I think you both need to confront something lingering under the surface of your show. The bias against one Robert Weir. The ridiculing of the blues numbers, the hamminess of it all, the slide, and sometimes anyway, the tin, empty sound of his guitar tone. The thing is, I agree with you on all fronts here and find you're poking at Bobby and Deering and often hilarious. I, like you, find most of my love for the Grateful Dead through the songwriting prowess of Garcia Hunter. Um, I just want to say quick, well, that's one problem with this letter. Our love is not just about Garcia Hunter. We love Garcia Hunter, but uh, we also love Weir Barlow. But I digress. Well, well, let me read the rest of this letter. But I have to tell you, there are others in the Grateful Dead universe, not like me and not like you. There's people like my wife. She only likes Bobby songs and somehow has no love for the Garcia tunes. She also hates, I mean, hates the jamming. (laughs) I realize it's questionable if this person is really a fan of the Dead in general to be more of a fan of Bobby and all things Bobby. It's bizarre. This is a person who broke into tears at a Dead and Company rendition of Looks Like Rain. In uh, 2016, I just asked her what her favorite songs are, and she can't name them. She just says those bluesy Americana songs. (laughs) I can only guess she means things like El Paso, Mexicali Blues, and songs like that. This is to say, it would be funny to find someone to join your podcast sometime who really loves Bobby and who would take offense to your constant skewering of him. I'd like to see that dynamic because, trust me, Bobby devotees exist they are real i live with one that's from matt in syracuse thank you matt for that um i'm just gonna say i feel like this is more directed at you because i feel like you 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 take more shots at bobby than i do well the list at the start was all my uh all my was all you all my beefs with bob yeah i i have my take on this but i'm wondering like what do you like what do you have to say to matt about this you know i feel like we cycle through times where people accuse us of being against different members of the dead <laughs> like and i think we've uh we've taken our shots at everybody you know appropriate for a thoughts on the dead dedicated episode like i think what we shared in common with rick is that we realized that the dead are and the members of the dead are very fun to make fun of <laughs> and every member of the dead has something that you can kind of laugh at and 
Bobby might be the best for that. He just like sets it up so much because he's so earnest. I mean, that's the thing about Bobby, right? And it's what's endearing about him and what can also be kind of annoying about him. So I, I get it. We, 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 it, it, it's fun to have a good chuckle at some of Bobby's antics. But I will reiterate, which I've, I'm sure I've said before, multiple times probably, that I think Bob Ware in the 70s is maybe my favorite rhythm guitarist in rock history. Like, I, I can't think of somebody I like better on rhythm guitar in the 70s or somebody who was more inventive in that role within the structure of a rock band. And, you know, obviously Jerry Garcia is probably my favorite guitarist of all time, but, you know, it's not for nothing that Jerry rarely played with another guitarist other than Bob. Like, Bob was the perfect compliment to him. I mean, that's not really getting at what, what Matt's talking about here, like the Bobby songs. And I enjoy the Bobby songs. We talk about it all the time that there's sometimes like a whiplash of mood in a Grateful Dead show between these very emotional uh, Jerry songs and then Bob doing like a cowboy fantasy <laughs> every other song. But you kind of need that. You need the like yin and yang of the dead between Bobby and Jerry. I think they're a much less effective band. I hardly ever listen to Jerry Garcia band, which you think, you know, if I only liked the Jerry stuff from the dead, it would be a, a you know an easy thing that, oh, I'm going to just listen to JGB and not listen to the dead. But I always reach for the dead over JGB just for that that tension, that creative tension between Bobby and Jerry. I mean, he's like, the magic of the dead wouldn't be the same without, you know, if he took any one single member away. But Bobby, of course, is a huge contributor to the, the, the weird casserole that is the Grateful Dead. So, yeah, I mean, just to reiterate, like a lot of things that were mentioned at the start of this letter, I feel like they're more Rob criticisms than mine. Like I, and, you know, I, I'd make jokes about his hamminess, but I love the hamminess. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think Rob does too. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I love that aspect, but I like the bluesy stuff too. I like the element that he brings to it. And also echoing what, what Rob just said, I think the great thing about Bob is that there is an aspect to him that you, you can make fun of from a place of affection. And that's where we come from with Bob because Bob, he acts in a way that I think invites that type of reaction sometimes because he is, I think more of like the lighthearted person mm-hmm. on stage, especially, you know, when Jerry was alive, like that was the contrast. You know, we've talked about this when we, when, when you see dead and company now, like he's the one with the gravitas. Like he is the Jerry in a lot of ways of, of dead and company. Right. Uh, so it's been interesting to witness that evolution, but you know, we make, we make jokes about Phil too, Phil being a cop. You know, right. you can make jokes about Mickey. The thing about Jerry is that you can't really make jokes about him. And it's not just because he's this musical genius, but it's also because he died. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. He died under tragic circumstances. There's, you know, even when we're talking about Jerry in his prime, which we're going to be doing in this episode, there's always that element of melancholy with him. And like I would feel bad making jokes about Jerry, <laughs> to be honest with you. you know, even, like, even if you're talking about like the briefcase, you know, like, right. with all the drugs in it, you can only go so far before you remember the end of his life. And then right. it's not so funny to really make jokes about that. Whereas Bob Weir, he thrived and he survived and... Mm-hmm. You know, and, and Phil is still with us, and, and Mickey is still with us, and it's still great that that's true, but then you can have a little bit more fun with them, you mm-hmm. know? But again, it's all love. We love them. Right. We love Bob. Uh, and we like making jokes about Bob. Yeah. It's just part of the package. It's just so easy. <laughs> he makes it's so, it so easy. easy. <laughs> and, and shout out to your wife for crying at Looks Like Rain at yeah. the Dead & Co. show. I think that's, that's nice. great. Yeah. It's a beautiful song. Good for her. I'm glad that she... 
you know, we all have our access points with the dead. We all have the different things that we like. So that's what's so good about this band. It's they're multi-dimensional. Right. Maybe maybe they have more dimensions maybe than any other American rock band ever. So we'll take some time to give Bob some love in this episode, I feel like. Uh, we'll like take it, some shots too. We gotta take yeah. some shots too. Yeah. It, you get it, both. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. The shots are also tributes, by the way. Uh let's get into this release. Dick's Picks 29 came out June of 2003, and it's a Betty board. Yeah, or... both of them. All three of them, I guess. Yeah. And man, you know, we say it every time we get a Betty board, but the bottom end richness of a Betty board, especially when you listen on headphones, is unbelievable to me. And look, sometimes I'm not sure what to credit in terms of the band playing extremely well and these recordings sounding so good. But it's like I'm extra attentive to Phil Lesh during this era because the bass sounds so good. Right. And he's playing really well. Yeah. But it's just captured with so much clarity and power. We were chatting about this the other day that May 77 Betty Boards maybe sound better than any studio Grateful Dead record. Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> like it's like uh, it's, it's, it's a vision of the dead. Uh, it captures the dead at their most deady, I feel like, in a way that the studio albums didn't. The only ones that come close maybe are American Beauty and Working Man's Dead, which not coincidentally, Betty had a role in recording uh, in the studio. Uh, but that's even like the sort of stripped down, you know, woodsy folksy dead, not the, the live Grateful Dead experience. I mean, I might go even farther and say that it sounds better than any other dead live recording. Mm. You know, I mean, one of the cool things about the dead is that like certain years, like the live recordings have sonic characteristics that you can tell like what year it was. I mean, not just because of the repertoire, but also like they sound a certain way, like 73 sounds different. Yeah. 80s dead has its very particular sound. Yeah. Yeah. Like just sonically. But um, I mean, just from a pure audiophile perspective, I feel like, the clarity and the power of the recordings are so like it's so good. If it's not the best, it's among the best. Yeah, uh, it's in the conversation. How lucky are we too to have like these recordings that are forty five years old that sound like professionally recorded, but captured a live experience. Uh, and it, you know, it even sounds better than some dead recordings from from later, right? It's just like... Well, that October 11th show... Yeah, even that one sounds incredible. Which you can go on Live Archive, or, you know, re-listen and listen to that, and I assume that's a Betty board. It sounds like a Betty board. It is, yeah. And uh, that sounds amazing. It sounds so good. Yeah, like I do not have the CD. I am one of the people that uh, does not have access to the bonus tracks. So I just went on re-listen and did my research there and was like, man, this sounds just as good as if I had you know, a CD on a hi-fi system. Like, it's incredible. Now, like in our uh, Dick's Picks 3 episode, and we're going to be covering some of the same stuff, not, not as much in depth. If, if you want more background on May of 77, I suggest going back to that episode. We'll, we'll touch on some of it. But one thing we talked about in that episode that we'll bring up now is that almost every show from May of 77 has been released. Right. There's even one more since we talked about it uh, for Dick's Picks 3. <laughs> yeah, the, the the Dave's Picks 41 yeah. uh, is uh, May 26th. Just took another one off the list. That only leaves, yeah. I believe, four May shows that have not been released at this point. Yeah, you have May 1, uh, May 3rd, May 4th, and May 18th are right. like the only shows, and I assume eventually they will be released. Right. <laughs> it seems inevitable that they'll come out. But yeah, every other show has come out, but you made a, 
I think, a good observation that in terms of the Dick's Pick series, this was only the second May 77. So as of June 2003, when this dropped, there still wasn't that much out Mm -hmm. relative to what we have now. Right. And like, you know, even in the timeline of our show, Dick's Pick 3 feels like forever ago. Uh, But there was actually eight years almost between Dix Picks 3 coming out and Dix Picks 29 coming out. And Dix Picks 3, of course, is an abridged version of that show. It it left a lot out. It's about two-thirds of the complete show on May 22nd. So this is the first time a a complete May show had ever been officially released by the dead. You know, as we said, they released kind of two and a half shows. So they, they, they turned on the fire hose here. But for a series that is, you know, sort of, you know, building the canon of live Grateful Dead performances it's pretty crazy that it took until dicks picks 29 to get a second may show now they've done other 77 shows and we've covered those there was the the show from december that's dicks picks 10 i believe december 29th yes and of course english town was included in there so we had some like later 77 sprinkled in between but it made me wonder actually if dick was not as big of a fan of may 77 as your typical deadhead I guess. And I actually did find it looked like like an old web message board post by Dick from the 90s where somebody asked him for his list of shows better than Cornell from 1977. And I think the subject line of the post is 20 shows that are better than Cornell from 1977. And then he ends up actually listing like 40 shows <laughs> that are wow. better. Um, and his, his list for May 77 is kind of actually interesting. He lists May 15th, 17th, 18th, and 21st. So we got the 21st in this volume. But the 18th, we'll talk about it, has yet to be released. So even one of the ones that Dick thought was better than Cornell still have not made it out in an, in an official capacity. So uh, he said, all of those are deserving notation, and although they don't match up with May 22nd, which was Dick's Picks 3, they are each more satisfying than May 8th. So I think Dick's maybe being a little bit of a dead snob here, because we'll talk about it some more later. But I th- Cornell is a pretty good show. I mean, I, I, I understand people saying, oh, you know, it's not the be-all, end-all of Grateful Dead concerts, but... Well, I think Dick is, you know, he's echoing what my attitude Right, which maybe. is maybe he's just sick of it. He's just yeah. sick of that show. It gets so hyped, and he just like wants to give some some shine to other shows that aren't as well known. Right, you know, another fan of uh, this particular Dick's picks is our boy John Mayer. That's right. He loves uh, the May nineteenth show. Yeah, in particular the sugary. I think he called that like the sort of the ultimate example of uh, you know Jerry Garcia soloing and you know very lyrical kind of way yeah i i found his quote he did like a serious xm thing a while ago and he called it the ultimate document of guitar playing songwriting singing band interplay all of it sugary from dick's picks 29 this is the one i just hand to people this is the mix people the playlist has already been assembled people <laughs> it's dick's picks 29 apparently he says people a lot he says if you if you if you go back and listen to some of my performances with dead and company i'm sure each performance of sugary has a little bit of a quote one way or another from this performance of sugary which i mean jerry solo is for like 15 minutes on the sugary so there's a lot to pull from well and we'll talk about this when uh we get into the shows but if you go on heady vision Mm-hmm. Four out of the top five sugaries are from May of 77. Yeah. And we'll talk about what was number one. Was it the May 19th one? We'll find out. But that's when we get into the show. Um, as far as setting up where the dead was at at this time, again, we talked about this a lot in our Dick's Picks 3 episode. Yeah. Go back and revisit it. Yeah. I don't want to get too much into that, but like, what what should we do just to kind of quickly set this up? I mean, this is coming 
after they recorded Terrapin Station. So they are very well rehearsed, maybe more rehearsed than they would typically be on a show. And it it seems like that's an easy explanation for how tight they were. Mm -hmm. Probably better rehearsed than they ever were at any other time in the history of the Grateful Dead, thanks to the producer Keith Olsen uh, being a slave driver with the the drummers in the studio. Yeah, I mean, it's just like a lot of things came together in May 77. We talked about the Betty Boards. There's new songs, the Terrapin material, Terrapin Station, Estimated, Fire has been brought in and welded together with Scarlet. Got a lot of disco energy, which you could interpret however you'd, you'd like, whether it was a musical influence or a pharmaceutical influence uh so it's just like one of those months where everything lined up for the grateful dead but i think we, we got the end of this in volume three and we'll talk about this some more today i feel like may 77 also contains like the seeds of all the things that i like less about the future of the grateful dead do you have like an inconsistent keith starting to pop up in early 77 you've got some weird guitar tones that they would just you know dive deeper into as they went on you got slower tempos we've got a few examples of that coming up predictable set lists is a thing that's a knock on may 77 sometimes and just in general it's it's kind of like a more professional dead sound and i think that's a loaded statement because maybe the dead were not at their best when they were being entirely professional yeah, I don't know about the guitar tones thing. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna diverge from you a little bit on that. I'm not really hearing that in these shows. I, I definitely hear the more professional Grateful Dead and also the set list thing. I, I, that's an issue here, but I, you know, again, I think that just comes from overexposure because I mean, most people don't listen to like every single show from a particular tour. You have to be a pretty dedicated listener to do that. Yeah, but. This is a month where just because there's so many live albums from that have been officially released from May of 77 that even more casual Dead fans have heard a lot from this period. So things might get a little repetitive for that reason. And, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we talk about Dick's Picks 3. That was May, May 22nd. You know, we have the May 21st show here. We have the May 19th show. So, like, all these shows are, like, right next to each other. Right. Clustered together. Yeah. And we, we've had that before, like, with a bunch of dicks picks from September of 72. Mm-hmm. But even those are like separated like by a week right. or so. Yeah. Uh, these are like right next to each other in the dicks pick series. So some re- repeats are going to be expected. I mean, there's some like a lot of repeats on this collection that we're going to be hearing today too. And uh, some repeats that were added because of the October material. <laughs> right, exactly. So yeah, that's going to be fun to get into. L- let's talk about the venues here. I guess we're not going to talk about Norman, Oklahoma. <laughs> we, we don't need to talk about that. We're going to talk about the two main venues. Yeah, two very, very different venues, which is kind of fun. Yeah, the Fox Theater in Atlanta. Yeah, which is a famous one, the Fabulous Fox. Yeah, this was like this is like one of those old kind of classic venues too. It was like opened in 1929. Yeah, as a big movie palace. The description of it kind of reminds me of the Music Box here in Chicago. You know, modeled as though it's like a a Middle Eastern courtyard. Like from the outside, it looks like a mosque kind of, and then when you're in the movie theater, it's got like the balconies around the side, like you're in outside in a plaza, and then it's got the fake night sky on the ceiling with twinkling lights and cloud projections that move over so it sounds really cool I, i've never been there but uh you know a pretty famous venue for a lot of different musical reasons yeah i i know about this venue just because there have been historic concerts played there by some of my favorite artists like there's a very famous springsteen show from the darkness on the edge of town tour in 1978 that was played at the fox theater 
one of the most famous Pearl Jam shows of all time was played there, April 3rd, 1994. Very well-regarded show. The Grateful Dead played there 10 times. Is 518 also in Atlanta? It is, yeah. It was a two-night run. So a little yeah. bit unusual that they decided to release 519 and 521 rather than just the two nights in Atlanta. But seems like 518 is by May of 77 standards, like not especially well regarded. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually listen to that show. You checked it out, right? I listened to it. It is. Yeah, I, it's like kind of an OK show without like a clear highlight. There's a really long Stella Blue that I was excited to hear. Uh, it turns out it was really long because they played it at like 10 beats per minute. <laughs> like It is oh, so nice. slow. You can hear your pulse like dropping to zero as you're listening to it. And even for a band famous for their long tuning breaks, I think 518 might be close to the record for <laughs> longest tuning between songs. Okay. Like there were a bunch of songs that had like three minute gaps of just tuning. So maybe not the easiest one to put out officially. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're going to go... 518 versus 521, it's a pretty obvious choice. Right. Uh, yeah. Which one you want to go with. 521 is clearly better, yeah. So they played three shows in 78, two in 1980, and three in 1985. And then, of course, they moved on to larger venues after that. They played the Omni in Atlanta 24 times. Wow. Yeah. I think most of those were in the late 80s, early 90s. The Omni is where the Atlanta Hawks used to play. Right. Uh, I don't know if the Omni is still there. I went to a uh, Christian youth convention there in the 90s. Wow, okay. So I've been to the Omni before. Yeah. yeah. I think they did tear down the Omni. I don't think the Omni yeah. is there anymore. Yeah. So again, Fox Theater, beautiful venue. And then we have the Lakeland Civic Center. Yeah. Which doesn't quite sound like sportatorium level, Florida seediness, but I think it's probably not the nicest venue, <laughs> not the nicest room to play. As we said, Lakeland, Central Florida. It's not described as a suburb of Tampa, which means maybe it's a little closer to the coast. But it is a very typical Grateful Dead venue because it has mostly hosted indoor soccer, arena league football, minor league basketball. I think a G League team plays there now, the Orlando Magic's G League team. And, of course, minor league hockey. Yes. Which, I mean, would they have had minor league hockey in the 70s in Florida? I (laughs) I don't know. I feel like the National Hockey League, you know, they didn't come to florida until probably like maybe the 90s or like aughts or so yeah i think they did some like exhibition games and stuff down there like i saw for this venue it was the uh there was an exhibition game in the 90s nhl exhibition game where uh, a a female player played for the first time in a nhl sanctioned event or something like that so but i the the most exciting piece of music history i found about the lakeland civic center was that a 1976 concert. So actually, December 1976, just a few short months before the Grateful Dead were there in May, there was a KISS concert at the Lakeland Civic Center. During the opening song, Ace Freely touches a metal staircase that was ungrounded and is electrocuted. The concert is delayed for 30 minutes, and then they come back out, finish the set. He says he, he couldn't feel his hand for the rest of the concert, which seems like a liability for a guitarist, but I guess Kiss can muddle through. Uh, and he uh, later, you know, enshrined this experience in Ace Frehley's, uh It was like a spotlight song at Kiss concerts called Shock Me. Yeah, which I believe is on Love Gun. It is, yeah. It's a good song. This is when I really wish Thoughts on the Dead were was guesting on this right because you had a whole kiss conversations with him right yeah he's a big kiss fan and the intersection of kiss and the grateful dead this would have been a a brilliant soliloquy on his part (laughs) uh so again another shout out to him wish he was here the dead actually played this venue three times they also played it in 80 and 82 and the 80 show i've heard 
because of Rick. That's a really good show. They played like a bunch of shows in Florida in November of 1980. Uh, and they're all really swampy and funky. And you know, it's, it's sort of like a late disco vibe at that yeah, point. Maybe you know, that's the sleazy. seediness I was craving from these oh, shows. Yeah. Like I got to go to the 1980 Florida run. Yeah. Yeah. That, that November, like it's like, it's like late November of 80. A lot of, yeah, just seedy, southern, swampy, coked out dead. Yeah. Really good stuff. Sounds great. set up the scene here talk about what else is going on in pop culture at the time of these shows in 77 number one song in america sir duke by stevie wonder yeah what a song to pull for number one man like you know this is like songs in the key of life era yeah stevie wonder stevie at his peak and i didn't go back and check but i think you know most of these are the same <laughs> as they were probably for three so we probably already uh told you probably already, yeah. <laughs> our, yeah, our thoughts could... on all of these things yeah uh, yeah but... we i'm sure i, I want to i wonder if i said the exact same thing <laughs> in our dick specs three episode. you can go match it up yeah like what did we say about sir duke two years ago when we first recorded this because well the number one album was rumors which was the number one album for like the entirety of 1977 right so right uh we definitely had our thoughts on rumors uh annie hall was the number one film which i i think we had you know some queasiness talking about uh even back then great movie but not somebody anybody wants to talk about anymore i don't think we talked about this last time but the grateful dead movie came out right after may 77 i didn't realize i knew that it had been delayed because of course they were 74 shows uh that were recorded for the Grateful Dead movie, and it took forever for Jerry to edit it. But yeah, June 1st is when the Grateful Dead movie hit theaters. So in a way, I mean, I guess they were touring, you know, the Terrapin Station album, but, you know, they were also kind of promoting the movie, which famously, I think they wanted the movie to be like what would tour around the country during their hiatus and continue making yeah. them money so that people could go get their fix of Grateful Dead shows by seeing the Grateful Dead movie, but it actually didn't come out until they had been on the road for a year and a half. Well, that's one of the things, too, that precipitated their hiatus because it's just like a money pit. Yeah. And like, we got to take a break. And then they're already back on the road like for a while by the time this movie comes out. I wonder how widely available that movie was. Well, they said, I think that they only had one copy and they like road showed it. <laughs> okay. um, and, or it was a very small number and it was like, it was on the midnight movie circuit, right? So, right, right. Like a lot of movies, like I think Eraserhead was out around this time too. I think we talked about this last time where there was just like, you know, two prints of it and they would just take it to a theater and it would play midnight movies for, you know, three months until people got tired of getting stoned and going to see it, and then they would move it on to the next city. So the Grateful Dead movie, I think they also tried to have like a sound system that traveled with it to do it justice, because movie theaters had terrible sound back then. So, I mean, the whole thing was 
you know, a boondoggle that just burned money <laughs> from the Grateful Dead's account. But, you know, hey, I'm glad it exists. I'm glad we can watch it today. So... Are we just going to cut our TV segment at this point? <laughs> we were talking about it. Because I feel like that's run its course. But one thing that you found that I thought was interesting is that we were talking about Space Mountain earlier. Yeah. yeah. That opened at, well, I guess it opened at Disneyland, not at World, because they would have been in Florida around this time. Right. Disneyland's in California. But that opened May 27th, 77. That's right. So a, a major cultural moment. So if uh, Jerry wanted to ride Space Mountain, he could have done it when they got back to California after this tour, I guess. The other thing I found just looking at news and events around this time, a few weeks after these shows, but uh, the NBA Finals that year, the Blazers won. And the MVP of those NBA Finals was Bill Walton, uh, which, you know, of course has dead-related content. But then I, I, I thought about it, and it, it made me kind of sad because if... Bill Walton was playing through the entire NBA playoffs into early June. That means he probably didn't get to see any May 77 dead shows. So like the number one Grateful Dead fan missed out on this entire historic month of Grateful Dead. So that's true. That's true. And then, uh, you know, Mickey has his uh, car accident not long after this. So he's not able to see them that summer. Yeah. During the off season. You're right. Maybe he made it uh, to English town before, uh, the season started up again. Maybe they played so good in May 77 because Bill Walton wasn't there. Maybe they weren't distracted by these seven-foot guys standing in the middle of the crowd, like, doing his, like, pointing at the sky thing that he does. That's possible. Or maybe they were doing it for him <laughs> as he's making his playoff run. <laughs> right. You'll never know. You know, I just realized they're called the Blazers. I know yeah. it's Trailblazers. <laughs> but, you know, there is the drug connotation there as well. It's true. It's true. Anyway, I think it's time for us to get blazered up yeah, we, here. We got seven hours, six hours of Grateful Dead shows to talk about here, so let's get into it. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York. A podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. We are at our shows here, finally. We got 519.77, 521.77, and a little bit of 1011.77. This is a six-banger. So in the interest of not having a seven-hour episode, we're going to talk <laughs> about each show in its entirety rather than walking through every disc. Yeah. Because, you know, we don't need to talk about Promised Land. <laughs> you know, we don't need again. to talk about, again, no, we want to just hit the highlights here. Right. Uh, spend appropriate amount of time. 
Do we want to say like where our preferences lie at the start here? Yeah, I think uh, let's go ahead and show our hands. So I think uh, just to introduce some conflict, or I mean, we didn't we didn't contrive this. So so I no. I, I prefer uh, the the first show. I prefer May nineteenth. You know, I had to pick between the two. Yeah, and I'm I'm I lean to five twenty one. I'm with uh, Dick on this one. He five twenty one was one of the shows that he said was better than Cornell. I don't know if I'd go that far, but <laughs> I I like it a lot. I love I like five nineteen a lot too. And we'll get into the highlights of five nineteen first here. But five twenty one, I think for me, it was just a little more satisfying. And uh, you told me a little bit about your because I know you like five twenty one too, but you. You have a very specific criticism, I think, of that show. Yeah, and maybe we'll get into it when we get into that show. But uh... which I'm just gonna say right away, I don't think your criticism is warranted here. <laughs> I don't think it's warranted. Uh, but we'll get into that when we get to 521. Let's talk about 519 first. Yeah. Well, just to, to, to I, I mentioned this up top that like I was ready to dive into this and get some like really coked up, like gnarly, like discoy dead. Uh, and instead, what I get on the first disc of this set. And the first set of 519 is just a succession of really beautiful, slow, Jerry ballads. <laughs> like, that, that's what this show is serving up, at least at the start. Uh, there's Bob songs in between, of course, including Promised Land. But this first set is just, like, loaded with Jerry slow songs. Uh, some of them are great. Some of them I'm, uh, like, I was a little less enthusiastic about. But you get Sugary, you get Peggy O. Later on, you get Road Jimmy, you get Loser, but I think uh, the sugary is really probably the highlight here, or the the standout. Yeah, and again, as we said, you know, John Mayer, this is his favorite sugary. Mm-hmm. We also had a sugary in Dick's Picks Three that's very beloved. In fact, to call back to what I was saying before about Heady Vision, the Dick's Picks Three version from Five Twenty Two Seventy Seven is the highest rated. Sugary. Right. And then the one from 528.77, which was released as a standalone live album. I forget what that one is called. I think that's at Hampton. Is that the one that's called To Terrapin or whatever? Yeah, I think that it's might called be to it. Terrapin. It's in Hartford. The other that's, uh, H H name. Yeah. That one is at number two. That's a twenty-two minute sugary. <laughs> and that's the thing about these sugaries, man, in seventy seven. They like they're so long. You just like sink into them. I feel like that might be dead fans leaning into like more is better. Yeah, that being number two because the the Dick's Picks twenty nine version here from five nineteen seventy seven that's at number three. Mm-hmm. I would give that one the edge over the five twenty eight. I still think the Dick's Picks three sugary, which we did talk a lot about. We we both loved that one. I would give that the edge over. The one on Dick's Picks twenty nine here. Yeah, the I, I revisited that for this episode. The solo that Jerry plays in the Dick's Picks three sugary that starts around like the seven minute mark and it mm-hmm. goes for like four minutes is like one of the greatest guitar solos I've ever heard anyone play. <laughs> right, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's like one of the great Jerry Garcia guitar solos I think, but it, it's one of the best guitar solos by anybody. It's so beautiful. So that one is hard to beat, but this sugary, I think, is just outstanding. Yeah. I mean, if the Dick's Picks 3 one didn't exist, or if I could wipe it from my memory, then this one would blow me away. Uh, but as it is, it's hard not to compare back to that one, which we, we talked about uh, in one of the live episodes, I think, that those early Dick's Picks were all kind of like oriented around like one just astonishing highlight, like the Here Comes Sunshine 
from number one or the dark star on number two. And then number three's like star of the show is clearly this majestic sugary. And this one, it's like, it's very much in the same zone. Like it's got those three different separate jams, like long solos after each verse and chorus. And yeah, if you're doing it one-to-one, I feel like it's hard to prefer this one over Dix Mix 3. You know, maybe John Mayer knows a lot more about guitar playing than I do, so... I mean, they're both great. I, yeah. I mean, I I don't think it's a, a wide gap. I think no, they're no, pretty no. close. Yeah. But just like that one middle guitar solo from 3 is... Puts it over the it's top. It's just... For me, yeah, it's it's so astonishing. One thing I like about uh, Dix Picks 29 versus 3 is that Dix Picks 3, it cuts out the Peggio. Mm-hmm. And I remember we went back and we listened to the tape on Live Archive. It's a beautiful Peggio. And Peggio in 77, it's another song from that year that just kills. And the version here is amazing. So I'm really glad that we get the Peggio this time. Yeah, exactly. I think in for Dick's Picks 3, I think we hypothesized that maybe Dick thought Sugary and Peggio were kind of redundant sort of similar songs so he had to pick one and of course it was going to be the sugary but yeah peggyos from that month are so good i found in researching this episode our our friend at save your face the great blog that posts you know these sort of condensed mixes of grateful dead months or runs or even particular shows he did a 21 minute like mega edit of all the peggyos from may 77 so it's like the song at the start of Peggio, and then it's every Jerry solo from a May 77 Peggio strung together to be one long, like 16 minute solo, and then the end of the song. That's something new you want to check out if you really just want to. If you, I guess if you want Peggio at like sugary length, <laughs> you can get it wow. uh, from that one. So, But he also did like an instrumental edit of this particular sugary where he cut out all the vocal parts and just strung the jams together. And even that alone is 10 minutes long. So it shows you just how, you know, relaxed and improvisational these sugaries were from that era. One thing that we have to point out about like the early part of the show is the Ho Chi Minh shout out <laughs> that Bob does before El Paso. Right. And because he notes that May 19th is Ho Chi Minh's birthday. <laughs> and I looked it up and he's right. Yeah. It is Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh actually died in 1969. So this is like a posthumous Shout out. He, he, of course, Ho Chi Minh was the leader of the of, of the Communist Party in Vietnam. Yeah, and uh, Bob says that 
he read it in his almanac that it was his and like again this is 1977 it's not like he could have googled it on his phone so like has it ever been discussed that like, bob weir bringing an almanac onto her has that ever come up in any like grateful dead book yeah i guess in like the I'm pre-internet days i mean they had these long bus rides atlanta to lakeland is probably a pretty well this is this is from atlanta so he had two nights in atlanta but you know you gotta do something on the road you gotta read something it reminds me of the Bobby Sand shout out from that 180 sticks picks we did. I feel like Bob sometimes just is like reading the newspaper and is like, I'm going to say something about this tonight. Well, it's one <laughs> thing to read a newspaper, but like, I'm just intrigued by him bringing an almanac on tour. Yeah. Like, he's just cracking open an almanac. Well, it's the kind of thing you at... like, uh, you put in the bathroom on the tour bus. It's for, uh, you know, what was that called? The uh, There was some like almanac that was always in college bathrooms. Uh just random facts you could read while you're doing your business. So maybe that's what he was doing. You know, he could have shouted out Pete Townsend because May 19th is also Pete Townsend's birthday. Really? Okay. Yeah. I guess that wasn't in the almanac. Though. <laughs> so, he, so he wouldn't have known that, but Ho Chi Minh was listed. And I, I, I don't have a good read on what, like, the what, were the, what were the connotations of mentioning Ho Chi Minh's birthday in terms I don't of, like, know. politics. Like, I don't know. I don't feel like it was a political endorsement necessarily. It, it, again, to me, it's a uh, it's a glimpse into Bob Weir's you know tour bus life uh, <laughs> yeah. that he's just reading an almanac and he's like, oh, it's Ho Chi Minh's birthday today. Right. That's interesting. You know, he's reading that backstage apparently. You know, before going on. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is this is a little factoid. I'm gonna store away, and then it just comes out. Right. On stage. Somebody had to do a little tuning or something, so uh, it's yeah. Bob's job to keep the show moving. This show, in fact, this whole volume, just seems to be a really good greatest hits of typical Bob banter. Like, we get the just right. exactly perfect bit. The very start, before Promised Land. You get, before the second set of this show, what sounded to me like a variant of the Take a Step Back from Cornell, except it, it, it's sort of like Bob doing like an old timey movie bank robber bit where he's getting people to move move back so uh if you are a fan of bob banter this is this is uh, a, a great set for you yeah and i was intrigued before they go into estimated there's a long it's not even banter because the band is talking amongst themselves it seems like they're discussing what the progression's going to be yeah in the set and bob says something about how we've never done this before and then he asks for encouragement from the audience. Now, you you have this in our outline. You you mentioned this earlier about the weird tones in your in your estimation. Yeah, which I don't totally under. I, I I'm not on the wavelength with you on that one. Like, what exactly are you talking about? Like, how does that manifest itself in this show? Well, so one of the things that I think of when I think of Grateful Dead in May '77, and this is very much informed by the Cornell tape, of course. But it's Jerry's Mutron. Right. This is the pedal, the sort of Ottawa pedal that he uses, most famously on Estimated Profit. But he also tends to sprinkle it in in other places in May 77 shows. I think it's in Music Never Stopped a little bit. Sometimes it's in the Scarlet Fire. It's thrown around a lot. And it it, it sounds a little bit like the adults talking in a Peanuts cartoon. Yes. uh, That like wah-wah-wah sound. And I think almost, I feel like a lot of people who don't know the dead very well also think... That's what Jerry Garcia sounds like. That very processed, artificial 70s pedal sound. And I like it. I mean, I like it. I think it maybe he uses it a little too much in May 77. 
maybe it's just that they played estimated profit every night and it gets a little tiresome. But what what's interesting to me, there's some other weird tones in this show. Passenger sounds crazy on this show. I like it because it sounds totally nuts. But everybody is doing weird stuff in Passenger. Like Jerry's playing a very aggressive slide guitar, which I almost almost so like crazy slide that I actually enjoyed it. Uh, which says something, it really says something coming from me. Keith's got like some weird synthesizer stuff going on in Passenger too. It, it's just like a, it's kind of a mess, but it's like a beautiful mess. And it made me wonder if like, I was, you know, I was talking earlier about how May 77 also contains kind of like foreshadowing of some of the ways the dead maybe went awry, depending if it, on your opinion of 80s and 90s dead. But it, it feels like a month where they were starting to experiment more with like very artificial tones. Right. So like before this, like early 70s, Jerry, you know, he's using pretty traditional guitar tones. It's the the differences are very you have to be an aficionado to be like, oh, yeah, that's when he was using this particular guitar and it sounds a little twangier or something. But all of a sudden in the late 70s, you're getting like some really bizarre, you know, technologies being thrown at their guitar sound, being thrown into the keyboards, being thrown into even the drums to some extent, start getting, you know, a little bit more echoey or effectsy so i don't know it's something that just occurred to me over the course of these shows that sometimes they sound pretty weird and that's like a tendency that they like dove deeper and deeper into with mixed results after this yeah i mean i don't really hear that as much because i guess i'm thinking about the 80s and what you're talking about being so much more prominent that in 77 i don't really notice it obviously the mutron thing i i notice and i i love that i and i love estimated profit from 77 i mean it's really maybe the best year for that song if you know late 70s estimateds i think are always really awesome so you know in terms of like the synth tones or keyboard tones i mean obviously when brent comes into the picture not even in the early 80s but like late 80s that's when that becomes really prominent but i love that stuff so i don't see it as a problem necessarily at this point and of course i love the slide guitar i know you're not as much of a road jimmy guy is it because of the slide in that song? Because there's a great ghostly slide that Jer- Jerry plays in that song that I I, I absolutely love. Like yeah. that is like my favorite type of slide that he does. That was where in the first set it was starting to lose me a little bit. All these slow Jerry songs. Like I I love the sugary. I love the Peggyo. Last episode I talked about like really loving the Ro Jimmy that we got on Dick's Picks twenty eight. Uh, and then this Ro Jimmy reminded me pretty immediately of why I'm not a big Ro Jimmy fan because it is very slow, very slidey, <laughs> and very too drummery. <laughs> and it was like, oh man, this is no, I find I, it very I, tedious. <laughs> can't I can't I couldn't disagree more. And I think what I was saying earlier about the that Betty Board's bottom end, like where Phil and the rhythm section too, I think they really shine because it just sounds so powerful. Mm-hmm. That's what elevates that song, along with Jerry's guitar playing. But like Phil sounds great on that song. And Phil, just in general, is great on this disc. I think Keith is also really great on this disc. I, I think that that Phil and Keith in particular, along with the rhythm section, I think they really benefit 
from the Betty board because, right. you know, when we talk about Keith, we, we say this often that it's like hard to hear him sometimes. And he, and, but you can hear him clear as a bell mm-hmm. on these recordings. It just gives you another appreciation of like what he brought to the band. And there's just so many just beautiful little licks that he uh, plays throughout. And again, Phil, you know, this is like peak Phil bomb era. So, you know, we're, we're going to get some serious Phil bombs, especially on, Phil, on, on 521. Yeah, Phil sounds fantastic too. I mean, you said that this is the show you prefer right. here. I mean, is it because of the third disc, basically? Yeah, so I like where the second set goes a lot. And it's really the segment bookended by two halves of playing in the band. And, you know, I think we've talked a lot about, and there's always a playing in the band to talk about, it seems like, <laughs> on these sticks picks. Um, and we've talked a lot about the early 70s ones and, like, that we enjoy them, but it like it, it's a little hard to get into those like twenty twenty five minute long playing in the bands. If you sum up the two halves of playing in the band in this set, it actually comes pretty close to that. Like the first half is eleven minutes, second half is ten and a half minutes, and I really like it. I like I like when they broke up playing in the band in this era because I feel like it hadn't totally gotten contrived yet. Like it sort of became like a cliche dead move later on to do the play and reprise. It still is to this day. Bob does it with the Wolf Brothers, I think, where he does the second verse of playing in the band later in the show after playing a bunch of songs in between. Uh, But this is one that really felt natural to me and a little more spontaneous. I think I'm sure it was planned out. Like they tended to plan chunks of the set list in that way. But I really love the first half of the playing in the band, and I love how they seem to almost kind of stumble into Uncle John's band, which is another thing they did a lot. They would play playing in the band and Uncle John's band together in later years. Uh, but this one, it sounds completely accidental because they don't just go into the start of Uncle John's band. They actually find themselves in the end of Uncle John's band, like that end really aggressive jam part. And they play the end of Uncle John's band, and they stop and they start over at the start of Uncle John's band. And I just really like that as like a very spontaneous, seemingly unplanned segue in the middle of a month that is kind of, you know, as we said, one of the knocks on it is that the set lists were getting a little bit predictable at this time. I thought it was a cool, weird moment, similar to how Dick's Picks 3 has that weird segue into Terrapin, the middle of Terrapin.
I was gonna say you're you're a sucker for the second set playing in the band, like where they sandwich a bunch of things in the middle. I like it. I think that's a fun it's a fun set list gimmick. There was a Dick's Picks where they did that where it starts with playing in the band and it ends with playing in the band. Is that Dick's Picks twenty? Well yeah. Something like that. I feel like that might be the one because they I remember them doing that on another Dick's Picks. And I remember you being enthusiastic about that one. So that's like <laughs> that's like total Rob Mitchum like you're going to connect big time with that. Yeah, I mean, I like it too a lot. I, everything you just said, I agree with. One thing that I really appreciated too about this was hearing China Doll, which mm-hmm. is a song that we don't often hear. We don't hear that as much in the Dick's Pick series as often as like a Morning Dew or a Stella Blue or a Wharf Rat. You know, again, those like big dramatic second set Jerry ballads. But China Doll to me... Echoing what we were saying earlier about about Jerry, his ultimate fate. I remember in the uh, movie Long Strange Trip when they're showing f- footage of Jerry at the end of his life, they play China Doll under that. Mm-hmm. And there's something very tragic about that song. You know, maybe that's something that's in my mind now about that. But um, his solo on there is so great. It's a spine tingling guitar solo. Yeah. In the China Doll. So just an opportunity to hear that on a Dick's Picks album I was excited about. And again, I, I always bring this up, but like, should we consider all of that playing in the band? Yeah. that This like a medley in the middle playing in the band? But That's like, what I like about it. Out of the China Doll, they move back into playing in the band. And I think later on, this is what I'm talking about when it became a cliche later, that they would kind of just like kick into playing in the band. They would do the second verse and they would wrap it up and that'd be the end of the set. This one, they sort of like ease back into playing in the band and it sounds like they're about to do that but instead they kind of like pull away and it's my favorite part of this whole show is there's this very quiet long jam that a lot of it is just like a jerry bob duet again we were talking about at the top of the show like jerry and bob they had this psychic communication between the two of them and this is a great example of it like just the two of them having a conversation on their guitars the drummers pull back and do this like very restrained sound which is also a thing that i don't associate with may 77 dead or with two drummer dead like the fact that the drummers could kind of lay back and be a little more subtle it was just a really unexpected turn similar to the segue in uncle john's band like this play and reprise that actually felt like it had some meat and some you know depth to it instead of being a setless gimmick so yeah i mean it's just a really cool suite we got the wheel in there too which i i, right. I enjoy hearing the wheel the wheel coming out of drums is a, is a classic move it's 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 a lot of like classic things that the dead did a lot in later years that still sounds fresh in this show and that's what i appreciated about it if you just look at the set list on paper you're like i can name a dozen shows where they played the wheel out of drums and they played playing in uncle john's band and they did a reprise but uh this sounds like they're discovering that this is an effective flow of songs in the moments and then later on they'll they'll recreate it another cool thing about this is that they didn't play an encore at this show oh this is a baller move right they play play and reprise and then they were out (laughs) yeah there's no there's no perfunctory 
berry being sprinkled in there or like a U.S. blues or something. They're just like, no, we don't need another song, like a party song. We just did this awesome thing. Yeah. Which, I I mean, there's, I'm sure that someone has tabulated this, but I wonder how many times they did that. Because that seems like a, that's a pretty rare thing. Yeah. When I was going through May 77 set list, it seemed like they did it fairly often in May 77. Oh, that's interesting. Where they would just like end the second set and walk off. And you never know if it's like a curfew thing or what it is, but I kind of like it as a statement of just like, this is as good as it's going to be. Why like trudge out here and do one more Saturday night, (laughs) which is, which we'll hear later, not as an encore, but I mean, because it seems like back then the fake encore was already codified as part of the rock show experience. This idea that like, we're going to plan on an encore Mm -hmm. at the end of the show because we're going to leave we're gonna walk off, do whatever, do whatever, whatever it is we do backstage for about five minutes, and then we'll come back out. Right. Like that was all. Like I, I would love to find out when that became the law for yeah. bands. That'd be a great, uh, deep investigation for you to do. Who invented the fake encore? And like, were there other bands who were like, "Oh yeah, that's a good idea," you know? <laughs> we're gonna copy that because you know, at some point. Bands were like, well, people are just going to clap because they think that their clapping will bring us back out. Right. So let's just indulge them. Like, let's just trick them into thinking that, yeah, your your clapping did it. Your clapping brought us out here. (laughs) Right. It's a very, like, kayfabe thing, like the wrestling term. Like, we all know what's going on here, but we're just going to pretend we're going to play our roles and act it out. And I feel like it's like jam band law that you have to do two sets and an encore. And I've been in like fish shows where I feel like people are pretty chill between the second set and the encore because they know they're coming back. They always come right. back. So people actually right. like take a break or they like walk to the back of the venue to get a head start to the parking lot and stuff like that. Like it's like an agreed upon truce that like you don't have to cheer that hard. They're going to come back out anyway. It would be funny if a band was like, you know what? They're not clapping enough. Axe the encore. We're not coming out. <laughs> Put on the like, house lights. Some, <laughs> like, like, like there's some like clapometer backstage that yeah. you can if it, if it doesn't reach to like the red era like area of the clapometer right we're not coming out like oh almost did it nope okay axe the encore and it could be like bus. that uh harper college the end of the harper college show where sam cutler comes out and says uh the grateful dead are very tired <laughs> and will not be coming back out the show is over <laughs> like you have oh, your manager man. come out and like scold the audience for uh not clapping hard enough <laughs> it's that's like, awesome it's like clapping for tinkerbell when you see peter pan you got to bring a bring them back to life It's interesting as we transition to 521, because as I said, this is the show I prefer. But maybe we should just address your, I won't say criticism, because I I think you like this show a lot. But 
basically, I, I feel like you prefer 519 because you feel like there's more novelty there. Yeah. And whereas 521, you am I right that you feel like that 521 feels a little stock in terms of the set list for May of 77? I don't, I don't know if I would put it that way. I don't think, and I don't think it's a complaint. I, do, I think 521 has the deck stacked against it a little bit uh, or a higher bar to clear. Because 521 is the show of these two that is most similar to Cornell. And I think one thing that was genius about releasing May 22nd from this month first as Dick's Picks 3 is that that show is extremely different from Cornell. Like there's like barely any song overlap. I think Estimated might be the only song that is shared between what they put on Dick's Picks 3 and the Cornell show. And it just shows you that like, you know, everybody thinks of May 77 Dead as being like the Cornell tape. But May 22nd is a very different show. May 77 could do all these other things really well as well. And so that's exciting because you hear about how, you know, that there there was a broader thing going on in May 77 Dead. 519, I feel like, is pretty similar too, where it's like, here's a different slice of what they were doing, a different taste of what they were doing in this month. 521 really feels like this is the the stuff that is on the famous Cornell tape, particularly set to where you have a Scarlet Fire, where you have Estimated, where you have a St. Stephen, not Fadeaway, St. Stephen. So I, I don't think it's a knock on this show in particular, but it's like, it's really hard for me not to compare it back to, you know, one of the great dead shows of all time, just because there's so many one-to-one comparisons to be made. Yeah, you know, I, I have to say I, that wasn't something that bothered me listening to this, maybe because I haven't listened to Cornell in a long time. Mm-hmm. So it was only after I went back to Cornell after listening to this, so I was like, oh, yeah, okay, so yeah, there's a, I mean, obviously I knew the Scarlet Fire, you know, from Cornell, and there's a Scarlet Fire here. Um, I didn't remember the, the St. Stephen, not fade away, St. Stephen progression mm-hmm. also being there those being like the two big things and you, you also get things like new minglewood blues is uh there do you get jack straw they love each other me and my uncle like the disco we me and my uncle all that stuff is on yeah. cornell but again it's like i feel like a lot of that is inevitable when there's so much release from this month and the set lists in general aren't dramatically different if you're listening to like everything that's coming out and i'll say you know i mean let's just start with the big set pieces here you know, Scarlet Fire, is it as good as the Cornell version? I don't know. I would probably give it the edge to Cornell. I mean, it's really hard to compare any Scarlet Fire to that. But, like, this is a pretty outstanding Scarlet Fire. I mean, if you again, going to the Heady Vision poll, obviously the Cornell Scarlet Fire is number one. I think this one comes in at around number 10. Which, considering how many times they've done Scarlet Fire, I think is like a pretty strong showing. Yeah. For this Scarlet Fire, I, there was one other Scarlet Fire from May of '77 that was a ahead of the one from 521. I think it's 525.77. But I mean, I love that the the Saint Stephen not fade away. Saint Stephen. I've talked about this before. I I I don't tend to love Saint Stephen's that they played after the '60s. Right. I love hearing that in the 60s. I feel like in the 70s it gets a little slower. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have quite the same power. But the Not Fade Away, which is a song that we kind of don't ever spend a lot of time talking about. Maybe we're wrong about that. I love the Not Fade Away on here. I actually like it more than the Cornell one. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with what Keith is doing. He plays the, a similar piano riff here that he does for the Cornell one. But it's so hypnotic. It has sort of like a New Orleans R&B type vibe to it, 
And I love it. It's like one of the best not fade aways that I can remember hearing. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I feel like there's instances where I would actually give 521 the edge over Cornell. Yeah. And if not an edge, very comparable. You know, like if it doesn't best it, it's performing very capably, I think. I think I like the St. Stephen not fade away St. Stephen better here, too. It's just one of those things where I haven't listened to Cornell in a while either, but it is so like carved into my brain. That it's like archetypal versions of all these songs <laughs> to some extent. So like Scarlet Fire, you mentioned like when we were talking sort of pre-show that you thought I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of Scarlet Fire, which I thought was interesting because I consider myself a, like I really love Scarlet Fire, but when I'm thinking about it, it's such like a narrow window of Scarlet Fire that I usually think of. It's like the, the Cornell version just looms so large. Everything else is in the shadow of the Cornell version, and I really love Keith in particular, in the Cornell Scarlet Fire. And there's just, I mean, there's not that many... In the lifetime of Scarlet Fire, the Keith era of Scarlet Fire is so short, because it's just 77 and 78, and he was kind of hit or miss in late 77 and 78. Uh, and then you got a ton of Brent Scarlet Fires and a ton of 90s Scarlet Fires that just don't really register with me. So it's like, I like Scarlet Fire in theory, but it's really like I'm just so drawn to that Cornell version <laughs> that it never quite satisfies me. It gives me what I want because I'm always comparing it against the greatest version of all time, of course. I don't know. I just feel like that is, that's a hard road to go down because, yeah. you know, if you're going to compare everything to like the most famous shows or the best shows, you know, you're you might as well just listen to like a handful of Grateful Dead right. shows. I again I I feel like something could be great without it being Cornell, you right. know. Like I I still think it's outstanding and I still feel like as a listening experience it's so satisfying. And it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to like any Scarlet Fire from right. this era and I'll enjoy them all. I think they'll all be great. And even again like if if we want to talk about like the first set, some of the songs that we've heard you know, maybe a lot of times in May of 77. I just really enjoy them. You know, I got to say, like, a song like New Minglewood Blues, for instance, which is not a song I would ever pick as being, like, one of my favorite Grateful Dead songs. I love it from this era. I I think of it as such a quintessential 1977 song in a lot of ways. I guess because of Cornell, you know, that's the song that kicks off the Cornell bootleg i enjoyed hearing it here like i i i'm taking a shot of whiskey listen to this you know i love the shot of whiskey can't get enough of it you know that's great i I, again the disco-y me and my uncle yeah i love i love the disco-y me and my uncle it's so funny like the drummers just cannot decide if they want to play it disco or country and they just like keep like even within like a bar, they're like going between the two. <laughs> it's just like it sounds so like trolly too. I feel like the, a lot of it was just you know people give us shit for making fun of Bobby. I feel like the drummers themselves were giving Bobby a hard time sometimes when they were discoing up his country songs. Yeah, but like you know Phil, like again he's funking it up with his bass line. Yeah, the brown-eyed women from these eras. Like, the disco-y brown-eyed women is is so good, and it's all down to Phil just, like, playing, like, the most funky bass lines Phil ever played, pretty, pretty much, on a song that, you know, predates funky bass lines. It, it seems like it would be a terrible fit, but it works so good. Yeah, like, one thing I really like about early in the set is the Jack row Yeah. Which, you know... That's a song normally in my mind that I group with Big River, which is this upbeat song that is essentially an excuse for Jerry just to rip some kick-ass country licks like at a very high velocity. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't know. I mean, I, I have to admit, I haven't dug deep into the history of Jackaro during this period. I don't know if they played it like this a lot, where it's slower. Mm-hmm. And the the drummers are really pulling back. But I really loved it. I loved this version. Like, it wasn't what, what I was expecting. But I thought it had, like, a really cool vibe. Yeah, it was one of the things I liked about the May 18th show, is that it has a very similar Jackaro that is... Yeah, you're right. It's kind of like... I, I This was, like, the most, like, chugly dead part of the show for me. Because it's got this like kind of like rhythm duet between Jerry and Bob for a long time before the vocals come in. There's like a nice like long intro jam on both of those versions of Jekaro. Jekaro, I always think of as kind of being a like filler for a set song, sort of just your standard Grateful Dead Jerry folk song uh, in the 80s and 90s. But yeah, I thought these were for me too like a, a secret highlight of this first set. There's also a really good Cassidy in this set that I think, you know, Cassidy, another song that is so associated with the 80s and with Brent era dead, but very cool to hear Adana Cassidy played, you know, very upbeat speed. It's a very upbeat set, a little more similar to the Dix Picks 3 May 22nd set, uh, where they sound a little, you know, peppy for possibly extracurricular reasons but i like that about it this was more like the sleazy dead i was looking for uh until you get into this like the second half of the first set has our arch nemesis tennessee jed (laughs) yeah And and then another row jimmy and another passenger and it's where it feels like a little bit like did we really need two complete shows here could we have abridged this a little bit but you know whatever yeah i mean again it speaks to the times where in 2003 getting to complete 77, yeah. May of 77 shows would have been amazing. Right. Um, <laughs> you got to do it. And it's it's such a slow one, too. <laughs> it is just like, I think, similar to my love of the Ro Jimmy, surprise love of the Ro Jimmy from 28. You really like the Jed from 28. I don't know how you felt about this Jed, but it was... Uh, everything that we've made fun of regarding yeah. Tennessee Jeds of old was back. I think I bathroom breaked Jed. Yeah, I don't think I listened to much of it. <laughs> I, I, I I I invoked the uh, bathroom break exception on this Jed. I was like, all right, I was I spoke nice of Jed and Dick's Picks twenty eight, but you know, let's not abuse my tolerance of Jed. We touched on this a little bit earlier. I mean, I was saying like I love estimateds from 
this era. Yeah. So I was excited to get the estimated here, estimated into He's Gone. And there's, there's one cool moment, like before they play estimated, it's actually like a long, about a minute and a half, where it's not banter, but it's like you can hear... Sounds like Bob and Jerry talking. I don't know if Phil's in on that too. Because like Bob tells the audience that we're going to do something that we've never done before. You know, we're asking for your encouragement. Yeah. And it sounds like you can hear them talking about the progression that they're going to play. Right. And I think this is a common dead practice. You can hear it in the 90s. You know, there's those bootlegs where you can hear their, uh, they had like a a closed circuit feed in their in-ear monitors where they could talk to each other on stage. Have you ever heard one of these bootlegs? Yeah, yeah. And they would come out on stage and they would talk about the set list and you could hear them like planning, like we're going to do this into this into this and then do drums, bass, and then come back and do this. Or sometimes they'll come when they come back from space, they'll like say, all right, and we're going to do this and this, and then that's the end of the show. So I feel like it was common dead set list practice to like plan out, not the whole set, but like a suite of songs. So I think what's going on here is they're planning to do estimated into he's gone, which they had never done before. It was the first time they, they did that segue. And I don't think they did it that many times after and pretty quickly estimated eyes became like standard. They would always go estimated eyes, but yeah, you're right. It's kind of fun to hear this band discussion again getting back to this thing where like the set lists are a little looser than my preconception of may 77 like they're still working some things out and when you listen to all these shows while it's a lot of the same songs popping up again they're they're not quite codified into like you know here's the way we always play these songs in a particular run and i like the estimated you know my i guess complaint or not even a complaint but like my wish is that like when they go into that end part and it seems like they're gonna jam it they don't play they don't jam that long i think that they end up playing it for about 11 minutes and then they go into he's gone and they actually like extend he's gone Mm -hmm. and there's a thing like the last three minutes they actually like pick up the pace right with he's gone they almost go into the other one but for some reason they stop and they go into drums and then they play the other one like phil actually even does like the role signaling the start of the other one and it's like i don't know if jerry just like walked off the stage and they had to do drums and then do it later um that's the part i don't i never understand like they're so close to doing the other one they're right on the precipice of it and yet they decide to do a, a drum break instead i have a theory as to why that might be and it's probably slanderous to put that theory out but maybe somebody just had to use a bathroom maybe it was a bathroom break on the on behalf yeah. of the band yeah it's possible i mean to me this is where 521 separates itself from 519 again you have that great scarlet fire but then you know estimated into he's gone which is i think a cool progression and then the other one just smokes and I think it's like the hardest rocking music out of anything on the whole set. Like, uh, on the whole six banger, it's the other one. That's like the, like the other big set piece here that like really pushes it over the edge. I mean, there's really again you we talked about Scarlet Fire and Saint Stephen, that fade away Saint Stephen. Those are already you know well known set pieces for the dead at, at this time. But I, yeah, just like having the uh, the estimated he's gone, and then the other one going into comes a time, comes a time again being another bad that beautiful jerry bell that we don't hear as much as some of the other ones that's what like really separates it for me mm-hmm. like, the other one here is just it just smokes like i yeah. love it yeah no my in my weak critical mind this is the part where it diverges from cornell so i was really able to appreciate the other one comes a time without comparing it back to may 8th yeah i love the comes a time here in fact this is a great set for i've said it before for jerry ballots like there's a couple points where it gets a little too slow for me but the China Doll, 
there comes a time like the the late second set Jerry ballads on both of these shows are incredible just the solos on both of those they're so long they're so luxurious they're so like well paced so lyrical As you said up top, you know, Jerry at one of his peaks, and it just sounds so good. It, it makes you think, yeah, May 77, pretty good after all. And we got to do a shout out to One More Saturday Night. Well, yeah, which finally made a Dick's Picks. I can't believe Dick's it took Picks so long. Dick's Picks debut. Yeah. And it's it's been cut out of some other ones. I know. It's been disrespected uh, throughout the series so far. <laughs> I know. It finally shows up, which is weird. You would think that this song would have already shown up at some I, It's got to but... be like a top 10 most played dead song, right? I mean, they certainly played it every Saturday night for 20 years. <laughs> and this show, this show was a Saturday night. It was, so you checked. Okay. 521, is a, 77 was a Saturday night. So we haven't had any One More Saturday Nights, and I was, I was like, oh, cool. I was actually excited to hear One More Saturday Night. I would rather hear this than, like, you know, again, a berry or, like, one of the kind of standard. Sugar Magnolia uh, again. Like, Sugar Magnolia, something yeah. like that. But we're going to get a ton of One More Saturday Night after this. It's like yeah. they, they, they realize, oh, we haven't put One More Saturday Night on a Dick's Picks. And now, what is it, like seven out of the next eight? It's uh, seven out of nine this season. And it's this okay. is kicks off a six-volume streak of One More Saturday Nights. So, <laughs> so we're, we're just getting... We'll hold our One More Saturday Night uh, thoughts maybe for a future one. Because... Here's your One More Saturday Night. Just choke on it. Right. Choke on it. Right. And it's like... I mean, all right. Again... I'm going to say it again, comparing it back to Cornell, the St. Stephen, not fadeaway St. Stephen at Cornell goes into one of the most majestic, amazing morning dues of all time. All right. Well, but you could just, you could dismiss any, you could dismiss all the other dicks picks by saying, well, there's an end with the morning dew from Cornell. You well, I, know, know? I, mean, I know it's true. It's, I, I know it's unfair, but it's just like, it's so close that I can't separate my mind from it. Going into one more Saturday night is a pretty significant downgrade that's all i'm saying i mean they also played one more saturday night at cornell but it was the encore i'm not gonna argue that one more saturday night is better than the (laughs) cornell morning do but again you know in the context of the show i was like i'm kind of happy to hear this song it's a good set closer Thank you. 
We haven't talked about any of the songs from uh, October 11th, uh, 77, the Norman, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma songs. They appear on discs two and five, and we get the Not Fade Away Wharf Rat around and around on disc two, and we get Dancing and Direwolf on disc five. Right. So not small amounts of bonus tracks, right? Both no. of those are like a half hour of music, essentially. We both went back and we listened to the entirety of 10-11-77, and to the surprise of no one, we have some notes. We have some <laughs> things that maybe should have been included, although I understand, I think, why they weren't included. Yeah. By the way, though, an egregious decision to <laughs> force a double berry on exactly. 519 by adding around and around. You already have the promised land. Now you're going to go five months into the future and add around <laughs> and around? Like the weakest of the berries? Right. That's the weakest of the berries. It's too. also the most like excruciating version of Around and Around where they do like they basically play the song twice. They play it really slow and then they play it like at normal speed at the end. So it's like eight minutes long instead of just here's your three minute Chuck Berry rocker. Yeah, not my choice. There were some other things they probably could have put from this show into that slot. That one for sure. That's the most egregious. And I just feel like they didn't want to edit the progression because you have the not fade away into Warfrat into around and around. Right. The not fade away in Warfrat, I mean, I think we both agree that those are fine additions. Yeah, and it's like um it's a cool not fade away. I think it's different enough from the not fade away from five twenty one that it's uh, totally. worth including. And it's longer, maybe too long. Again, it's a little chugly. Again, a good Jerry Bob like sort of interplay going on and uh, a different Keith part than what you were talking about before, right? But an interesting Keith part, I, I, I swear he's teasing Leo Sayer's long tall glasses throughout this Not Fade Away, <laughs> which I looked it up. It would make chronological sense. Leo Sayer was big in 77. He had another song on the charts. Long tall glasses is a couple years earlier. Oh, that's funny. But I think it's uh, it's very of the time for them to be paying a little tribute to Leo. Yeah, I like it. Uh, and having Warfrat, there's not a Warfrat from I, either of the May shows. And like we were saying, this is just, this set is just full of Jerry ballads that are really good and really long and full of deep solos. So uh, it, it had a little bit of Terrapin sprinkled in too, which is another reminder of Dick's Picks 3. There's a couple Terrapin teases throughout his solo. So worth including, I think. What'd you think of the dancing? Having a second dancing? Well, yeah, I don't know. Again, I mean, we'll talk in a minute about what else was in this show that wasn't included that we might have included if we were in charge. Yeah. Um, You know, it feels a little like overkill because there's already a dancing. So you get like over a half hour worth of dancing (laughs) on this album. Yeah. But... I also love Dancing in the Streets from this era. I love exactly. the disco-y Dancing in the Streets. So, and this version is like really good. I don't know. I'm of two minds on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it. It's a very good Dancing. I think it's really good. It's another one that I maybe prefer to the version from the May show. But, I mean, we're dancing around it. But there's a Help Slip Frank from this show that, yeah. you, that they easily could have put on it. It's only a little bit longer than... This very long dancing in the street could have just yeah tucked that in as a bonus track instead maybe yeah it starts the yeah ten eleven seventy seven starts with help slip Frank and it's really cool and we haven't heard a lot of those on Dick's picks like I know the last one we got was from May twenty second seventy seven but there's right there's not very many examples of it 
Yeah, that's why I assume it wasn't included because it was on Dick's Picks 3. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me because there's also estimated eyes from this show. And there's an estimated... Wait. It is estimated eyes on the 22nd. Okay. Yeah. So that would have been another repeat from uh, other Dick's Picks. I assume that's why it wasn't included. And there's two versions of estimated already on <laughs> volume 29. So that would have been three estimated properties. I suppose. Yeah. The thing is, though, I, you know, Eyes of the World, you know, my favorite Grateful Dead song, I tend to be a stickler about that song if we're not talking 73 74 77 i've complained that i feel like they played a little too fast Mm -hmm. and i think that was my complaint about the dicks picks three version this 10 11 77 i actually think they nailed it i really like that version a lot so Mm -hmm. that compounds the around and aroundness of it all (laughs) that you left a great you know, if you don't want to have another estimated on, just like do like a fade into the eyes of the world to just have that. It's such a cool version. I would have preferred that. And also the dire wolf they included is yeah. okay. Yeah, it, I think it's more of like a novelty than anything because I don't think of that as being like a 77 style song. The drums are kind of a mess on it. <laughs> but dire wolf is such an interesting song. I, I, I remember this from the dead cast where they did like a mega mix of dire wolf over the years because it kind of played it for almost all of the 30 years of the dead and it changed tempo and the the feel very subtly it never changed dramatically but like it's interesting to hear it through the lens of different eras of the dead so i kind of liked having it here as as you know a a point of interest for these shows yeah i mean i don't think it's uh i I think it, it is more for what you're saying like the novelty of it or just it's a different track that we you know, haven't heard elsewhere in the dicks Pick series like from this era so it's cool for that so again i understand like why they didn't want to have too much overlap with overlap with dicks picks three but again that's no excuse to force a double berry on us <laughs> that's a net an unnecessary crime that, yeah. that that helps no one no one was like oh round and around it's on here right thank god they they squeezed that one in <laughs> totally unnecessarily <laughs> You know, it's a real crime. So overall, I mean, what can you say? I mean, this was a great, another great volume here. The only debate I would have, and again, this is, you know, in light of when this came out, it made sense to release complete shows and give yeah. people the complete May 77 shows they craved. Uh, I think in 2022, a six disc set is a little excessive. I would have maybe preferred a little more curation to get it down to the highlights. And I really like, one of the things I really like about Dick's Picks 3 is I think it makes a good argument for not doing complete shows in some ways. Uh, It's a little bit of like a distorted record of that show because they seem to pick like the really disco-y stuff from that show. They they took a slice of that show that gave like an impression of that night that isn't totally true to what actually happened. But I kind of like that about it. There's a little bit more of like a personality to it than these shows, which are great shows, but they don't feel like they have, you know, a particular sound that separates it from, you know, your general sort of May 77 sound. But but I understand totally why Deadheads in 2003 were like, or 2005, I guess, uh, were like, yes, give me as much May 77 as possible. It's funny because the chatter around our Twitter account is that there's a lot of people that want them that want the dead to put the entire May 22nd show on vinyl. Oh, there's, there's people clamoring for that. Again, I'm of two minds on this. Like when you, in the CD version of this, 
they're packaged as two separate three discs collections. So you you can put it in the cardboard and they're together, or you can just take one, put it in your car, and listen to it as like a standalone album. So mm-hmm. in that respect, I think it's fine the way they are. I don't know how many people would like listen to this in sequence as an album. <laughs> I don't think it's really designed for that. Yeah. I think it is more of like a you're a dead fan, you just want everything from this era. So you're like I'm going to have a 521-77 phase, or I'm going to have a 519-77 phase. I'm just going to get really granular with it, you know, and just marinate in this period. So it makes sense for me. And I hear what you're saying about the, about the curated approach, because I like that too a lot of times, especially if you're talking about like a run of shows. Right. And you want to get the highlights of it. But having said that, you know, my big, again, my biggest complaint about Dick's Picks 3 is that they cut the, sh- uh, they cut the uh, Peggio. Right. You know, it's like, I wish the Peggio was on there. And, you know, I, I tweeted about that. And someone was like, what would you cut? And I almost said, We'll take Lazy Lightning and Supplication off. But then I went on Heady version. That's the number one Heady version. <laughs> Lazy Lightning? Like, it might just be because it's the one most people have heard. Uh, maybe. But, that, but that's yeah. on, well, that's, that's on Cornell too, though. Lazy Lightning, Supplication. Yeah, that's, that's also true. on Cornell. Yeah, yeah. So, so people prefer the Dick's Picks 3 version of that. It's like, oh, I guess you can't cut that. So I don't know. Again, you know, they gave us all the stuff and they still had room to give us the around and around from October 11th, <laughs> 77. So even this wasn't enough for the CD technology. They had to still squeeze still more on. Right. Um, looking ahead to Dick's Picks 30. Yeah. This is like one of the more unusual Dick's Picks. Yeah, I love it. That we've ever done. This is like, a, it's like a curveball within a Dick's Picks. Because the I- whole first disc is a set. With uh, Bo Diddley. Yeah, exactly. Where the Grateful Dead are the backing band, yeah. So uh, I'm actually really excited about this. It's, you know, similar to the fact that Dick didn't release a lot of May 77 shows when you think that would be a, a no-brainer. It's also kind of interesting that they didn't put out any Europe 72 shows, like complete Europe 72 shows. I know they released the 100-year haul record early in the Dick's Picks run, and I guess... Technically, the Dick's Picks shows are supposed to be non-multi-track recordings, and maybe they thought Europe 72 recordings didn't count then because those are professionally recorded. But this is about as close as you can get to a Europe 72 show without being in Europe because it's, it's the run at the Academy of Music in New York City, which is sort of like the, the farewell party before they went abroad to Europe. Yeah, and again, I mean, we're just hitting all of the big years. Yeah. Here in our final season, we did 73, we just did 77, now we're going to do 72. Yeah. And uh, I, I believe this is a four-banger? Yes, four discs. It, it draws from mostly one night, but with some other stuff sprinkled in. Yeah, March of 72. Yeah. So, man, again, not much time for breathers this season. I guess you get two weeks bef- between each episode. Right. If you're binging on us, <laughs> there, there's not like, oh, this is like not a great album. No, we're getting we're getting heaters left and right. So yeah. I'm excited to get into it. It'll be a good time. Yeah. Very, very cool. Dick's Picks coming up. And uh, hey, we made it through the six banger. It's all uh, downhill from here. <laughs> yeah. The the longest disc pick is now in our rearview mirror, so we can uh, ease into a four disker for next time. So less homework for everybody out there. Less homework for us. Can't wait. We'll see you guys soon. Talk to you later. Thirty six from the vault is hosted by me, Stephen Hyden, and Rob Mitchum. 
and produced by Osiris Media. It is edited and produced by Brian Brickman. All music is composed by Amar Sastry, unless otherwise noted. Logo design is by Liz B. Art Design. The executive producer of 36 from the Vault is RJB. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everyone? It's Joe, and I'm the host of That's Awesome with Joe, a podcast on the newly formed Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. I talk with tons of your favorite artists, managers, touring personnel, and more. Most of the time we talk about music, but lots of the time we end up talking about something completely unrelated. We laugh a lot. We do a lot of really stupid things, but also some things that are really informative and interesting. Basically, it's a podcast that I think you should listen to. Obviously, I'm biased because it's my podcast, but I think I might be into it if I wasn't the host. Check it out at SoundTalentMedia.com.